Hey folks, welcome back to the Well Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. And in this podcast, we want to share mentorship to learn how to hunt, fish, and gather wild food. Our goal is to reduce barriers and create an inclusive and welcoming community for all folks who want to learn how to eat wild. So join us as we share stories, ethics, adventures, and knowledge about a way of life that's rooted in eating wild. Hey folks, welcome back to the Eat Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. I'm really excited to share this podcast episode with you. I've invited Wayne Sawchuk on the podcast. Now, he's an author, he's an adventurer, he currently does tours, horse packing tours throughout the Northern Rockies and the Muscoquachica. But if you're a hunter that loves wilderness or if you're a conservationist, you would know Wayne as one of the advocates that campaigned to have the northern portion of the Rockies protected under the Muscoquachica management concept. Now, we'll get into what all that means in the podcast. Anyways, Wayne is an amazing storyteller. He's a passionate advocate for wilderness. And he's just an all-around interesting guy. I've actually wanted to have him on my... I've actually wanted to just know him for years. I ran into him on the trail years ago uh, on my way out from a horse pack trip. And, and he was going one way, I was going the other. Um, but years later, uh, I, I love having this podcast because I have this excuse that I can kind of call people up and and uh, we can set aside some time to have conversations around things I'm I'm passionate about. And I think it's an important message to share. So... You'll really enjoy this conversation with Wayne and, and be sure to stick around to the end because the, the best story is at the end and it involves stealing sheep meat from a grizzly bear. So you, you got to stick around for that. Okay. We have a bunch of news for Eat Wild. And the first bit of news is we've, we've probably thanks to you folks, I should recognize this because our, our, our listenership is up to a point where I'm able to you know, reach out to different partners and say, hey, do you want to help us uh, deliver this podcast and and uh, pay for some of our production fees or share in the cost of our production fees? And and folks are, are excited to support us and what we're doing. So first off, I want to thank you as listeners who have been listening and downloading the episodes because that's basically what helps uh, make it happen. And, uh, and so with that in mind, I finally kind of got around to reaching out to a few companies that I believe in and see if they wanted to come on and be partners on the podcast. And, and so I've, so a few, I said, yeah, so lots of good news. So number one, um, had a great conversation with Al Duffy. He's the chair of the BC, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, uh, chapter. And I've been working with the BC BHA for a number of years now, uh, supporting the region two group and uh, doing events and workshops. And we just did a, a fundraiser in Vancouver last month where we raised uh, some money for conservation efforts and uh, they've agreed to be our conservation partner. So that's, that's amazing. It's, I, I was looking around for the right fit for, for eat wild and to find a conservation partner that we could talk about the good work they do on this podcast. So what I love about BHA and what I think it's been a really good fit for the work that we do at Eat Wild, where we're trying to help folks become new hunters and find a place in the hunting community. The BHA 
is a relatively new conservation organization here at BC. They've been very active in the States and they've had a lot of success uh, doing uh, conservation work and talking about, uh, you know, access for folks to access the public lands in the States. Here in Canada, the BC or the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers has gotten fairly active over the past five years and been building up membership and setting out goals and objectives for the type of work they want to do here in Van- here in here in BC in particular. The cool part about the BCHA for me is that they are a relatively young organization. The, the, the average age of membership is under 40, which is which is great to hear. And in my experience here in Region 2, when we have events, I see gender equity and diversity in the room when we bring together the membership. And that's really important because I think the new generation of hunters is, is much more diverse than what we would typically see with some of the other conservation organizations. While they do good work, I don't know if they've created a place for this new generation of hunters that that I see as part of the work that we're doing at Eat Wild. So super amazing work that they're doing and probably the biggest thing that can sell to folks is that if you become a member of the BH, the BCBHA, you're going to meet other like-minded hunters and other folks that can help you, number one, build community in the hunting space and also help you along on your journey to become a better hunter. And at the end of the day, you're going to be a conservationist and you're going to want to do work for conservation because you're going to fall in love with wilderness. It happens to all of us. So great place to start. So I'm super stoked to be involved with the BCBHA and the good work they do. And I encourage you to get a membership. And as you listen, you'll hear more about the type of work they're doing and opportunities to participate. So stoked about that. All right. The other big news is we've been working with the iHunter app for years and years now and using it as a platform for a lot of our in the field learning. So with any any courses or workshops that we deliver, we're basically using that app as the foundational learning tool for helping folks navigate and interpret the landscape through e-scouting to e-scouting and it's basically the most important tool that I use while hunting other than my firearm and my, my binoculars, I guess. But what's cool about it is that, you know, years ago I used to have like multiple apps on my phone plus a GPS unit. And this app is able to kind of incorporates all the different bits of information that I need to pull, whether it's topographic maps, uh, satellite imagery, and most importantly, a GPS toolkit that allows me to drop waypoints and navigate in the woods. So it's super powerful too. It also gives you the regulations for where you're hunting. And I think the coolest thing they've done, and they do better than anybody else, is they offer a private land layer, which really helps all of us ensure that we are hunting on crown land and we are avoiding potentially um, ending up on private land. So it's a super cool tool. Anyways, they've been working with us and supporting our charity events for for years. And I finally got around to saying, hey, do you guys want to do something a little more formal with us and help us produce this podcast and bring it to people? And they were 100% on board. So the iHunter app is now an official partner to the Eat Wild podcast. Stoked about that. Also, we had a great contribution at our most recent fundraiser from the Beer Brewing Company. So Matt Beer has been brewing beer for past number of years on the North Shore, just the lower Lonsdale area. It's beer, spelled B-E-E-R-E. 
and they make amazing craft beer and they've been you can probably find them in most liquor stores now they've been doing great as far as distribution and, and getting their name out there happens to be an easy name to remember if you're in the beer world um but yeah they make great beer and they come on as a sponsor for our charity events and they're now the official sponsor for the eat wild podcast so we're really doing great on our sponsorships because you you know that we've been supported by seek outside they make amazing tents and we've had uh the West Coast Kitchen supporting us for a long time now, and they do amazing freeze-dried food that's super healthy and keeps us nourished. We use the Seek Outside tent on all of our trips, and this past trip we were in the 12-person uh, teepee tent, which was awesome. It was like camping in luxury. We had a really wet marine access bear hunt, and we got rained on every day, but we were able to dry out every night in the teepee tent. So we got a great podcast coming from that trip at some point. And of course, we were nourished by our food from West Coast Kitchen. So we officially have everything that you need to go hunting as part of our podcast partnership crew. We've got a great tent to stay in. We got food. We got beer for around the teepee tent fire. We got a conservation partner in BHA. So we're doing just great. And we're not going to get lost because we're using the Eat Wild app. All right. Well, I appreciate all the support from folks. And I hope that you seek out those brands. There'll be notes in the there'll be yeah some notes in the show notes. I should say that'll uh, if you want to get your hands on any of those products, but you'll hear more about them, no doubt, as I use them in the field and talk about them throughout the podcast. All right, I know you're going to enjoy this episode with Wayne Sawchuk. Don't forget to stick around to the end and help us keep this going and share this podcast with folks who like these types of conversations. And be sure to comment on uh, on any of our social media if you see it tell us what you think um, about the podcast and, and what we do here at eat wild okay folks oh lastly we did awesome on our we did we we launched our bear hunting online course which was something i was a uh, i'm actually really happy with how it turned out and we've been getting awesome feedback and we've got up over sold we've sold over 50 course registrations it's it's a relatively affordable way of getting started on bear hunting i think it's 18 bucks to get started and um yeah super cool program and happy to see people are 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 watching it and i hope you check it out too and otherwise we'll see you at the next workshop or talk to you on the next podcast okay thanks so much Hello, Wayne. Welcome to the Eat Wild Podcast. I, I'm really excited to have you on, so let's get started. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, yeah, I'm, my name is Wayne Sawchuk. I'm, uh, I live in northeastern BC. Uh, my background is basically as a logger, a guide, a trapper, a hunter, and a conservationist. Uh, for the last, uh, since about 1992, I've been involved as a, uh, with the Musquecatica and working to protect that big chunk of country up there. So I've been a conservationist for the last uh, over 20 years now, I guess you could say. And I still have a trap line out uh, at Mayfield Lake up on the Gataga. Right on. Oh, it's a... Okay, so my first question for you, Wayne, is what is... When you think of wilderness, what are the core tenets of a wilderness experience or a wilderness area? You know, wilderness is kind of a... It's, a, it's an odd term because we from, you know, our, I, I guess, Western industrial or colonization point of view, we see wilderness as anywhere where man doesn't have a huge impact on the land base. So in other words, the way I think of it is a place essentially without roads. That's the number one thing that, that uh, you know, those kinds of industrial activities uh, don't occur in that chunk of the land base. Roaded activities, I should say. 
But um, it, it's important to remember that uh, First Nations didn't see the land like that. They don't see it as wilderness. All they see it is is the natural land that's out there. So that's a very Western concept, the idea of wilderness. Dear to my heart. But uh, we have to remember that not all cultures see it exactly the same. And, and uh, it's an interesting dichotomy for sure. Absolutely. And so when we're going to talk a little bit about the Musquakachika or the MK. Can you give me the, the parameters of the amount of wilderness that is captured in the MK? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge chunk. It's basically um, uh, the northern part of the Rocky Mountains. It's the en- northern end of the Rocky Mountains. It, occurs, it li- lies basically between Fort St. John and Fort Nelson and Dease Lake, that big chunk of country in there. If you look at size, it's 15 million acres or 6.4 million hectares, which is about twice the size of Vancouver Island. So it's a huge chunk of country. I mean, you know, we travel in there for two or three months at a time with the horses and uh, never cross the road once we're, once we're away from the Alaska Highway, for instance. So, yeah, it's a big, big, beautiful chunk of wild country. So, it, it, I mean, this is not maybe quite possible to do now well actually it is somewhat possible but could you like provide an estimate of how long it would take to ride horses from the east side of the musqua kachika boundary to the west side of musqua kachika boundary yeah i think uh yeah well we've done that um (laughs) and it took us about uh about six weeks to go from deese lake to mayfield and then another two weeks out to the highway. So yeah, it'd be about two month trip to get across there, get across to Muscogee with a pack string. And then could you guess how long it would take to fly across in a beaver? It would take about, uh, I'm guessing about, well, I know I can tell you from the, our place in Fort St. John or near Fort St. John to get up to the, to uh, Mayfield, which is roughly in the center of the MK takes about three and a half hours. So yeah. uh, with a super cub. So to fly across the MK itself, yeah, about, I would say about two and a half to three hours kind of thing. Unreal, eh? I mean, that's a, that's a was, vast wilderness area. And, oh, yeah. And for, I mean, and for, <laughs> when you're up on top of a mountain, you know, if you're in the, in the, anywhere off the highway, quite, you know, if you look around at all those valleys and all those peaks, there's not a road or a seismic line or a, or an impact in any of those in any of those valleys, and that's a pretty amazing feeling to know that. And we we uh, experience that for basically months at a time when we're out there. That's a stark uh, difference from my experience as someone who values wilderness in, in park management, living in the south southern part of the province. Say, the experience of getting to a place where you. I mean, every bit of park or wilderness, I would call wilderness, is, you know, I can see a logging slot, I can see a power line, I can see a road. And and so my first trip to the MK and to be in that wilderness and to, to kind of have this be on top of, uh, you know, a mountain and look around and go, wow, I can't see a, I can't see anything that is industrial from here. And this is... That was a that was a that was a life changing moment for me. It was, uh, it was my yeah. my first deep wilderness experience. So so maybe that as an as 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 a second question for you, what is a wilderness experience? I think um, it's got it's got a lot of different components. First of all, the the land base has to be 
you know, intact. In other words, there can't be any roads or power lines or pipelines, any of that kind of industrial infrastructure, not on the land base. Then you have to be isolated from sounds. There can't be any sounds of, uh, you know, highway noise or anything like that. And there has to be a, um, a very low probability of encountering anybody else. And certainly when we're traveling out there on the, on the land base, if we meet, you know, three, three parties, uh, especially in the, uh, away, away from the highway, or once you get more than a week away from the highway, very rare to see more than three parties on in the whole, in entire summer when we're out there on the land base. Now, there are areas that are more heavily used and they had get a lot more traffic, but in general, a lot of that country is, is, uh, pretty wild and pretty remote and no people in it. And that, that to me constitutes true wilderness. Also, you know, you got to look at the complement of, uh, species that are out there on the land base. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, you need those big, uh, wilderness oriented species like, uh, well, wolverines, uh, grizzly bears, uh, wolves, those things have to be on the land base in order to, for it to be wilderness for me. Um, you know, I went to some of the parks down in, um, down in the U.S., and the land base is gorgeous. I mean, it's beautiful. You've got these walls of mountains and so on. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, what is it, Rocky Mountain National Park, I think. And, uh, and yet, there's no grizzly bears in that particular park. And it felt to me like something was missing. It was like a picture of a park, but not a real park, not a real, not a real wilderness. It was a picture of a wilderness. And that, to me, is something fundamental that, you know, you have to have that whole suite of animals that always live there. And and that's really, really important. Yeah, there is something about, I mean, as much as I, I spend a lot, I mean, when I'm hunting or adventuring in an area, grizzly bears are always part of your risk management plan. You're always thinking about, okay, well, you know, where are we going to camp? We want to be off the bear trails. We want to be, keep our food secure. We want to be trying to maintain good view corridors if we're seeing high density of, of bear, a bear sign. Uh, obviously, we have an animal down, and you know now we're managing around the set. So it it's sort of like, yeah, like that that just definitely part of the wilderness experience because you're kind yeah. of on edge a little bit. You're aware, but yeah, without that, it would feel like you're you're kind of like getting away with something. Like it's like it's yeah, like you said, it's sort of like a painting of it. it's not quite real if you don't have to be a little worried for. <laughs> no, if, there's, if there's not something out there that could eat you, it's it's not true wilderness. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my one of my good one of my mentors, Jeff Horsfield, is one of his lines says it wasn't if it wasn't for avalanches and grizzly bears, our, our wilderness would be overrun with tourists. <laughs> yeah, could be true. Could be true. <laughs> yeah, but you know uh, 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 the 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 danger of will of uh, grizzly bears certainly for us because we're not hunting very often. We don't have meat in camp very often, and we haven't had a, a grizzly bear come into camp uh, bother our bother our panniers or whatever uh for more than you know in, whenever for more than 30 years we've never had a bear come in and and bother our camp in any way if you can imagine and we're out there for you know three months at a time every summer that's remarkable you know and i mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i often think like i i'm like we talk about bear safety a lot in some of our courses and, and whatnot and and We've been pretty lucky. I mean, we've had some bear encounters, like lots of bear encounters, but not yeah. necessarily like that have escalated into bear problems. And um, I'd love to talk to you more about that, but maybe that's that's a that would be. Yeah, I'd be curious to know more about that and and how you manage your systems and and 
because I think it's always good to pass that type of information on. But uh, but we should carry on with the topic at hand. And the topic oh, at sure. hand is wilderness and the NK. And uh, yeah. I have a feeling this is going to happen about seven times in this call. <laughs> There's a lot of things I'm excited Yeah, we could go down about. that road for sure. Yeah. Very matters. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. <laughs> totally. But hey, um, I'm, uh, I'm so uh, uh, what, when did you have, well, you've, You've dedicated the past better part of your life here to finding a way to create some protection measures over the MK. Can you tell me about sort of when you started the process to build a community of folks to find a way to um, raise the awareness level of this wilderness area and the and the and the values and the need for ultimately finding a way to better manage it? You know this this um, I first well I heard about the Muskokachika since I was a little kid. Um, but it wasn't called the Musquecachica then. It was called the Prophet River Country, usually. That's what my, you know, the people in Moberly uh, usually talked about it because they went up guiding there. All the First Nations folks, a lot of First Nations folks would go up guiding. And I, so we heard about that when I was growing up, a lot about the Musquecachica, of course, called not called the Musquecachica at that time. And um, uh, I, I always had it in my head that it would be great to go visit that area sometime. And then in... Uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, I was uh, logging for a living at that time. And I saw a lot of valleys that, uh, one, that one that really sticks in my mind is the uh, the Brijon Valley near south of Chetwind. And that valley was pristine when we first got there. They had just punched the road in and we managed to get in there at that point on this muddy thing and, and uh, explore that country. And I was amazed. Like here was a pristine landscape that, you know, had all its animals, was was intact and so on. And then we went in there with our logging equipment and basically just stripped the thing. Uh, in, in other, we just heard today that, that, or yesterday I should say, that the Canfor mill is closing in Chetwind. Um, and that was one of the mills that we, our, our timber was hauled to. And why is it closed? Because we went at it too hard. We logged all the timber. And seeing that process go on, and, and then um, I was also involved with uh, cutting seismic lines and so on, also into pristine areas, you know, grizzly country and, and so on. And, and watching that and participating and actually doing the devastation myself, I, I began to have a real visceral feeling about, hey, this is not good. What we're doing here is, is not good for the, in the long term. And then, because I'd heard about the, the Prophet River country and those great big moose and caribou and all that good stuff, I decided to head in there. So in 1980. Uh, four, uh, my girlfriend and I took an 85-day trip into the Musquecatica and the head of the Prophet, the Musqua. We went, we made it as far as the Gathel, over to uh, Chesterfield and Hayworth Lakes. This was eye-opening. Uh, we almost um, lost our pack string on the on the way back. We got stuck in a um, snowstorm at 7,500 feet and had to spend a couple of days with no feed, no food, and no no uh, fuel for fire. We were way up above Alpine in September. Barely made it out, only by following a set of caribou tracks that tracked over the mountains, and, and we were able to follow those caribou. We were basically saved by the caribou. Uh, we would have lost our entire entire pack string if uh, we, would, we would have had to put them down and get out of there ourselves. But as it turned out, that didn't happen. We made it out. Everything was fine. But, you know, I felt uh, I felt I owed a debt to that. Uh, that land base, um, because essentially, you know, our lives have been saved uh, by by the caribou and and just the fact that we were able to make it out. 
And then, not long after that, they started punching roads into that country um, or attempting to do that uh, for oil and gas, pretend, uh, mostly. And so the roads were coming in up the eastern slopes. They were going up the Graham, up the uh, um, uh, Sikany, uh, all of the ne Nevis Creek, um, all, halfway. All of those drainages on that southern portion of the, of the eastern slopes were getting hammered by roads for oil and gas uh, ex exploration for the most part. And knowing what I knew after that 85-day trip of how valuable this land was, I mean, you know, we, we hardly, we didn't cross a road once we left the uh, end of the Alaska Highway for, for all that entire 85 days. And uh, I realized, wait a minute, if we let the same stuff go on that I was participating in when I was young around Chetwind, if we let that go on in the Muskogachika, it'll be totally destroyed. And we can't allow that to happen. It's too important. So in uh, 92, I started a campaign. I got together some of the guide outfitters and trappers and and uh, some of the uh, nat naturalists, you know, hikers, people who had an interest in the land base, basically, up there, and started a campaign to protect, well, essentially to counteract the, the, the uh uh, industrial companies that were putting roads into the mountains so far. That was the, the basic, um, you know, thrust of what we were trying to do. And um, then at the late 92, I teamed up with uh, George Smith with the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. And uh, George is a, a ferocious champion of wilderness. I, you know George, so you know this is true. I know George, yeah. George <laughs> and I have worked together for many years and, and have become friends. And I have a lot of time for George and his... his uh, yeah, his his uh, good work for conservation, and uh, I think the last um, last time I checked in on he was he was uh, heavily involved with the site C and and um, trying to get site C shut down. Yeah, and, um, he's yeah. been responsible for a number of parks and lots of parks and lots of conservation initiatives over the years, including the Muskwakachika. So we we teamed up in nineteen ninety two, late ninety two. He basically handled government relations and provincial level stuff. I handled more of the grassroots stuff and did the, uh, the um, land and resource management planning process. And those processes started up right around that time because while well, we were raising a fuss up here about you know roads going into these wilderness areas and so on, and the government had to have some way to cope with this, you know, these conflicts that were coming up as a result. And so they, they brought forward the land and resource management planning process. And uh, which is a multi-sector consensus-based process that had the had the mandate to produce parks and uh, um, and also high-intensity use zones and so on, basically to zone the land land base for for use. So, so I this, started this process would be just to give a little bit more detail in the, in, into this plan. We you, you would multiple parties would come to the table with their interests, and, and there'd be a discussion as to how to best use the land. That's right. Yeah, they were multi-sector negotiation processes, essentially. Uh, they were operated by consensus. So that was a, a really successful uh, method. I mean, uh, you know, these are thorny issues, really tough to thrash out. Who's going to get to use the land? Who gets to, you know, put roads in? Who gets to uh, hunt? Who gets to trap? Who gets to fish? How, how are all these things related? How, what about the wildlife? Let's not forget. And First Nations interests are on the table as well. So all of these things had to be brought to the table. Now, all of those things were dealt with, you know, well, I think during that process, with the exception of First Nations. Um, they 
didn't participate in the LRMPs officially. Some participated in a um, uh, uh, unofficial way, I would say, uh, particularly the the Casca, uh, the Casca from up in low, uh, uh, lower post. They uh, they basically uh, uh, were at the table for a good part of that process, and a lot of their interests were met, but not all. And so I know. You know, just jumping ahead, we're going to have to address those interests in the future, uh, and that's you know part of what's happening now. I think, yeah, I w- I'd like to cover that a little later on about what's happening now. Yeah, absolutely. But in, yeah, but in the past, these multi-sector uh, processes had all the sectors at the table, and you know, it's it's fraud. I mean, I remember <laughs> I was leaving a a meeting in uh, or at a meeting, I should say in. Uh, in one of the logging towns nearby. <laughs> and of course, as a conservationist, I was, you know, everybody was checking me out for horns and, you know, the forked tail and the whole work. One of the guys, one of the guys says to me, Wayne, he says, you know, this world be a lot better place without you in it. He said, and somebody might do something about that one day. Well, that, that's a pretty, pretty heavy that's threat. Pretty straight. Oh, it's a pretty, yeah, heavy pretty threat. straight line. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no beating around the bush there. So, so I, I, I made sure to check underneath my car on the trip home to make sure there wasn't any brake fluid on the pavement. But no, everything was fine. You know, everything was good. And I think that's it's a just just a measure of the the kind of uh, uh, emotion and 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 uh, you know conflict that can arise at these processes. But the good thing about the land and resource management planning process is that it was open-ended in time. Essentially, the government said, look, you guys have to come to a conclusion and and uh, you can get at do that for however long it takes, basically. And that meant that after seven or eight years, once we got all of the, you know, the positional stuff out of the way and we started to deal with the real, which took about three years, by the way, it takes that long in those processes to for everybody to kind of abandon their positions that they've you know long held and, and dearly loved positions and say okay I actually do have to kind of you know come to agreement with these folks even though I don't agree with what they want but I after a while you understand that these people are you know they have their hearts in the right place they have their interests their interests are legitimate and they have to be accommodated and as a result of that after you know, six to eight years of negotiations, the um, the LRMPs recommended a, a suite of stuff to government. And part of that was the Muskokachika, including the parks and the special management areas, all of that. A very complex system, not what anybody would have ever, you know, come up with on their own. But I really believe to this day, I do believe that it's the best solution that we all could have come up with. I don't I, I, I don't see any other options for what we did on the land base that was better. And I don't think anybody else does either. And that's why the um, the thing has legs. It's still surviving and, and still, you know, uh, uh, very strong. I think the people who participated, they say, look, we did that job and we want it to stay that way. Now we want the parks, we want the special management areas, and we want the high intensity use zones where they are. All that stuff should remain in place. Now, recognizing you know first nations interest which we have to get to which you know certainly will will we'll change some of that but that's in the future so before we get too far down the road and, and i mean maybe this is me being a park manager that's so interested in in the model of how it's managed and i should be kind of brief on this so we don't you know yeah. over complicate this but so 
so you, we, we've got, I mean, we all know what, a, well, most of us know what a park is, a class A park and, and what's allowed in a park and, and or what's not allowed in a park. Um, but what is a special management unit and what is an intensive and you, uh, intensive, uh, you, you mentioned intensive land intensive use, use uh, area. Yeah. Intensive use. Zones. So, so maybe just give us a little bit of description of, of, on what's allowed in these zones and, and kind of how does it look across the landscape? So basically the LRMPs were a zoning process. So they zone the land base for the, for the parks, first of all, which were off limits to industrial development. And then on the other end of the spectrum were the, were the industrial zones where, you know, it, this is, this is where the sandbox for the industrial folks to play in and get all their oil and gas and forestry and whatever else. And then, uh, so there was a great, a bit of a gradation there. And then in the Muskwakatika surrounding the parks were big special management areas. These are areas that are too important to, turn into industrial zones, I mean, they have huge values. The Prophet River is one of those, for God's sakes. The Prophet River is one of the premier watersheds in the province, if not the world. I mean, for wildlife and scenery and, and, and just the, the, the value of that place. It's not a park. And so what, what the tables agreed is that industrial development would be allowed in those areas, but under the condition that wilderness and wildlife be maintained in the long term. Well, how the heck do you do that if you're putting in oil and gas and forestry and mining? That's the challenge of the, of the LRMPs. You know, oil and gas can be done heliportable, for instance. Uh, forestry can be done, you know, select or mimic natural disturbance, reclaim those roads after you're out, make it look like it's a natural wilderness and so on. So these things can be done. They're not easy and they're not cheap, but you have to remember there's so many values on the land base that all have to be accommodated. I really believe that that's what the LRMPs did. And uh, to this day, they, they're certainly the best, the best method for sorting these things out that I, that I uh, could have imagined. So, so, to, so in the special management area, just a higher level of stewardship. So managing for wildlife values or wilderness values, you know, along with potentially allowing some resource extraction and trying to figure out a way to do it. And it kind of incentivizes, you know, perhaps being, um, you know, the, evolution of technology for resource extraction to maybe be lighter on the land or or just incentivizes ways of doing it and and yeah we don't really have that on the anywhere else uh as to how to you know no our current land use strategy the rest of the province we sure as heck don't and, and uh you know that is something in the future i believe we will go that way we're going to say look our entire land base is important we can't be screwing up any of it so i really think that in the future we're going to we're going to move down that road and put in special management areas in a lot of other places than the, just the Muskokachika. But nevertheless, uh, for now, it's EMK. And that, uh, that area is, um, you know, the, the management focuses on maintaining wilderness in the long term. We got lucky, though, mm -hmm. because, so I... well, I'm just going to go make one further point about the oil and gas situation. In the uh, late 80s, early 90s, I mean, they... They were going gung ho for the big, the big prize in the mountains: deep holes, uh, conventional oil and gas, um, and that that required like, you know, seventy or eighty kilometers of road. Sometimes it was one up the Sikini that put in was put in. I think at uh, Amico Sikini, I think it, they had seventy six kilometers of road to get in there. Well, and this is into a pristine valley, pretty much at that point. It you know had a few trails in there, but basically it was almost pristine. So. That was what was scaring the heck out of everybody is the, the prospect of that 
you know, coming down like an avalanche on the land base. So, but when the LRPs were completed, it wasn't too long after that that shale gas came on stream. And shale gas doesn't occur in the mountains. It's all outside. Well, shale gas with, with fracking is way cheaper, way easier to get at, land base is way easier to access, huge volumes of gas, and very much cheaper to access than those ones in the mountains. Suddenly, all interest turned toward the land base outside of the Muskogee and thank God we were left alone at that point. And and the uh, uh, there was no the pressure relaxed on the on the Muskogee We held them off for long enough that the the pressure was off basically. Well, so the technology changed in the resource extraction zone yes. and allowed for a more efficient way to pull extract. What well, that's interesting. That's a that's an interesting. Um, yeah, fracking. Saved I, I, I didn't. Fracking saved us. <laughs> fracking saved the wilderness. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah I, I know there's all kinds of problems with fracking, and but there's one. I guess that's a that's a great. That's uh, a silver that's lining. A, that's the, good, the upside. That's yeah. The, the silver lining. There is one. The Muskogee. Well, you know, it would be it would be in a far different state if it wasn't for fracking right now. Huh. Well, that's cool. Um, how did you get people to know about the values that were in? How'd you get the word out when you were sort of building this community approach to getting people at the table and getting some interest and how'd you get the word out? You know, that was a kind of a multi-pronged thing. Um, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, CPAWS, was really fundamental in that. They have, it's a provincial, they have provincial um, uh, chapters and also a national uh, board. And because they have that national reach, they were able to uh, you know, in newsletters and so on, in, the, in their in their publications and that kind of thing, they were able to bring the, the word of the Muskogee to a much broader audience. So that was really, really important. And then, you know, on a personal level, I was doing things like, uh, uh, well, writing a book, for instance, uh, uh, Muskogee, the Wild Heart of Canadian or Canada's Northern Rockies, and that book did very well, and I think really brought the MK to a lot, a big, a much broader. Uh, scope of people, I would say. So that was really, uh, really, really key. And uh, there were uh, a lot of other initiatives as well. Uh, movie, we did movies, um, you know, talks and presentations and all kinds of stuff to get the word out to people about what the values of the Muscovitica actually were. And you also, I, I actually have some friends, or I have a friend that was invited on a horse pack trip with you. And she's an artist in Vancouver, uh, Barbara Adler. I don't know if you remember taking her on a on oh, a, I certainly do. Your tours. Oh yeah, Barbara yeah, was so fantastic. We had a, we had a great trip. I thought that was so interesting because you know, it, you know, if you creating space and opportunity for you know, I mean, for folks who are part of different communities, right? And Barbara certainly, you know, from a she's a a poet on the east side of Vancouver right, and, right. And, uh, and creating space for folks like that to, to come and experience uh, the MK and then be able to share that story with her community, which, I mean, you know, for, for, for many of us in the city, like it's, it's, we can't even begin to understand what those values are and that are, that are there and to, and to figure out the, the importance of them and, and to have sort of champions embedded into the urban culture, I think, is, is right. pretty astute or wise. You well, know, <laughs> yeah, a campaign. We, you know, we, uh, we planned it for sure. We, or we, uh, we had the horses and we were heading out in the mountains every, every uh, summer, uh, you know, three months of a year. I've done for many, many years. And uh, uh, basically, I figured, you know, the only way to bring these values to people 
is to bring the people to the values. You know, that was a really important component. So I began to, first of all, it was focused on, uh, you know, industrialists like oil and gas guys, forestry, uh, government, people people who are involved in the Musqueam some way that could, could make a difference. So we really tried to get those people into the MK so they could see what they were actually going to be making decisions on. And then, uh, you know, the broader public. Uh, and I think that we've taken hundreds and hundreds of people out in the last, you know, couple decades. And um, I think everybody who does, who comes along on one of those horse trips, uh, they have a whole new understanding of, of wilderness and, and just what's out there on the land base. I think it gets right into your soul. You know, if you're out there for longer than a week, you're going to feel it when you go home. Like, holy cow, that was important. And I, I think that's just so key. It sells itself. You don't have to talk about it. You just have to be there for a week. And oh yeah, I get it now. This is important, and and that was that was kind of the strategy. We it wasn't a hard sell. We didn't try and tell people, look, you have to do this or that. No, no, just be there. <laughs> no, just be there. That's all. <laughs> do you want to go on a horse trip in the most beautiful part of Earth? Long? Yeah. yeah, that's not a hard sell. <laughs> not a hard sell. No, but you could. No, but I mean, I, I you know a lot I of do appreciate the You know, you you could you could have a hard sell there. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't yeah, do that, but. but no, but you got you. I mean, you know, every time you take somebody out, I think you make an advocate for wilderness, that's and I think that's, that's the key thing. And I and I, I really, I, I've always, I've, I've known you were doing that for a long time. I'm like, yeah, that, that's that's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, really appreciate that that approach. Well, thanks. Um, how 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 has the MK changed since sort of you know these early years of 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 creating the LRMPs and 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 the protection measures and kind of getting everybody into the concept that hey, we're going to do things differently here. Where are we at today? And, and in terms of its management, and um, is it working? The Muscle Kachika is working. Um, because the oil and gas, you know, pressure was basically turned to the to outside of the MK, that pressure was off. Forestry, it's not, you know, it's marginal at best. And so far, it's so distant that, you know, there, there's timber there, all right, but to get it out, it's just, it's just not practical. So that was out. Mining, mining values are... The, the boundaries of the MK were chosen to exclude the highest value mining areas, certainly on the east side, you know, on the East Lake side, and partially along the Wilson too. There's some big, uh, big uh, areas there that were, were excluded because of lead zinc deposits. So all of that meant that you know there was a lot less pressure to to get in and and protect the MK, or sorry, to 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 uh, to uh, extract from the MK. So we were we kind of gained in that way. So with, we, we, you know, I, I, have you seen a different, oh, I, I say like, uh, trying to come up to it, like trying to sound somewhat, um, uh, thoughtful about this, but we are, we're definitely seeing more, uh, a, a, more movement towards indigenous stewardship on the land. And I think that's, that's, we're seeing that in, in certainly our parks world and, and we're seeing it across the landscape and our resource management decisions and through, through co-governance and reconciliation, like this, this is happening. It's moving in that direction. Um, for the MK, uh, have you seen uh, significant moves towards indigenous stewardship or land management or involvement? Um, like you said, sort of at the, in the LRMP, there was sort of a, uh, and in your book, it was, you know, the, the indigenous, communities, um, First Nation communities were sort of maybe standing on the side of observing the process and, and not necessarily in some cases participating, 
but acknowledging that there's a treaty process that's underway and that that will affect it could affect things down the road um what are some of the things happening now in terms of the management of the nk and indigenous involvement well I, it's it's very exciting times i think um you know the cop 15 uh, um cop 15 conference brought forward a 30 by 30 goal basically what that means is that uh the national government and provincial governments have agreed to 30 percent of the land base protected by 2030. We now have just over 15 percent of land base protected. So that means in the next uh, next uh, what is it, eight years or seven years, I guess, we have to come up with 15 percent more protected area in, in on the land base. And I, so how are we going to do that? Well, because there's so many constraints on the land base now, um, the First Nations are going to play a fundamental role in determining where that 15% goes, I believe, because we didn't, they didn't participate fully in the LRMPs and that has to be addressed. You know, natural justice demands that, you know, the interests of First Nations have to be accommodated. Well, even even greater than that, the, the, the courts have told us on numerous occasions that First Nations have a right on this land. They are here first, you know, they didn't sign it away in many cases and then we have to address that. So I really believe that that uh, in the future, this 15%, a good chunk of it is going to be made up of indigenous protected and conserved areas, which is IPCAs. And these um, these protected areas are going to be brought forward by First Nations, and they're going to be under First Nations co-management, certainly, um, if, if not management outright, but it would be co-management. And I think that's not only appropriate, but completely desired. We, we want that situation where First Nations, you know, first of all, their interests are accommodated as they have not been for many decades, as we all know. And I mean, you know, the Blueberry case, for instance, um, uh, the Yahe case, they made the point that cumulative effects on the land base made it impossible for them to carry out their traditional activities. Absolutely right. I mean, when you fly over that land base, it's just chopped to ribbons. I mean, there's no way that, you know, any moose in that area, if it pokes his nose out, is going to get shot because there's so many seismic lines and, and, and just the disturbance. It chases everything off. So, no, it, 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 we have to make a new, a new stab at management. There's no question about that. And, and government-to-government relations with First Nations is going to be a fundamental component of that. IPCAs in the even within the Muscatica could definitely be a possibility overlaying on the Muscatica. We don't know about that yet, but the Casca have brought forward a very large uh, proposal called Denike Kusan. Very exciting proposal. Um, we don't know exactly what the rules will be in that area in the future, but and they haven't brought forward um, or, or declared it unilaterally, as was just done in the Taku, right? Mm-hmm. The Taku, just this last week, unilaterally declared a huge protected area in the, in the Taku. Uh, big chunks of it off limits to industrial development. Other areas where industrial de- development would be allowed under, you know, some, some uh, 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 circumstances and so on. So I really believe that's the future. Um, in order to get to this 50, 30 by 30, it's going to have to include IPCAs in a really, really big way. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting time for, for conservation. I think the, um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about being at BC Parks for some of this stuff and seeing how it lands with with parks and the opportunities that that we have to contribute to the process and and support these, these efforts of 
I did, you know, yeah, I, I'm excited about it for sure. Hey, I'm curious. For the, yeah. I'll just, yeah, sure. I'll just say one more word about IPCAs. So they, the, the Denike Kusan uh, overlaps the Muskokachika basically on the northwest uh, corner, if you want to put it that. But it's a big chunk of it that's overlap. And that overlap area is going to be very interesting because what rules apply? And, and uh, what, what is the decision-making uh, mechanisms that are put into place? And I really believe that the Denike Kusan, no question, has to be co-managed between First Nations and, and government. What about the rest of the MK? You know, First Nations didn't uh, bring forward their interests uh, to the table in, in, in officially, and yet it's time for that to happen. Does that mean that there should be co-management? In other words, decision-making by co uh, jointly between First Nations and government? It seems to me fundamentally that that is the way things have to go inside the Muskokishika as well. And we're not there at this point, but down the, li down the line, I think that would clear out a lot of problems, incorporate First Nations interest, you know, give government a way more certainty that the decisions that are being made are kind of kind of backed up by common sense, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's just a very, very positive development, a positive uh, um, direction that they're going going forward. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it just, you, you can't go forward without, you know, First Nations at the table. And, I mean, it's amazing that we got, it's amazing that we got, you know, that you really get this far with the MK man, well, protection and zoning and what, and then to bring in this next layer with that first nations involvement and passing on the stewardship, it, it it's actually, it's kind of neat. It, it, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a model that has worked and it's, it's hard to do stuff in this current day with the complexities of, of where we're at in terms of our land management, but this is a good news story and it could continue yeah. to be a good news story and not even a, a model for, for success. And, um, I'm excited to see where it goes. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally excited. Uh, and I, yeah, it's a t tremendous lifetime of work to, to get to this place. And, and, and folks like me who are wilderness junkies get to go and experience it and, you know, and, uh, and hopefully be able to, yeah, experience it for the rest of my adventure days and, and, and for future generations. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. I, I agree hundred percent. I think that's where we're at. Yeah. Hey, so have you seen any, like you, so you've, you've been in the MK every year. How many, how many days a year do you spend in the MK on, on the back of a horse? About, about three months, uh, basically. Yeah. We just only head in, the, in kind of mid, mid June and come out mid September roughly. Okay. Have you seen any changes? I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming what, what, what changes in wilderness uh, wildlife values have you seen over over that time? Any uh, notable? Well, well, oh yeah, no, there's changes for sure. About uh, about a decade ago now, we had a major downfall in in populations of moose and and uh, elk. Now, prior to that, it was the caribou had you know basically plummeted, certainly in the southern area, not so bad in the north, but in, in the south, the caribou really got hammered. But um, but what happened with those uh, moose and caribou, or moose and elk, I should say? You know, populations. I I figure moose went down eighty percent. Wow, that's kind of my read on it. Valleys where you'd go in and see, you know, twenty moose. Uh, after a decade ago, you might see one, and maybe not even that. A lot of areas there wasn't even any tracks. Well, what happened? I I've asked the the wildlife uh, managers. On many, many occasions, I think they're getting kind of tired of it. <laughs> what happened? What, why did we lose our moose? 
And you know what? Nobody can answer that question. Can you imagine? We're losing 80% of our moose, and nobody can tell us why that happened. Now, the, the majority of the, the big losses were, for the most part, in the mountains, uh, which is the, the, the Mayfield is a, the Gatag is an interesting case because there's no roads, there's no ATVs, there's riverboat access to the lower component only. There's uh, very, very little hunting, very little hunting. Like, you know, the guide outfitter might take one or two moose a year kind of in that area, it, it, very low. So what happened? How did we lose, you know, literally hundreds of moose? And, and uh, uh, again, the wildlife managers cannot tell you the answer to that question. You ask them, they won't, they won't be able to say. I believe, you know, my own, and I have no evidence to back this up, but just how I, how I felt that things went. In, in uh, January, we had some huge thaws, unusual thaws around that time for a couple of years running. And we had big rains in, in January, in the, middle of, in the middle of January. And that made a, a glaze a, across the snow, that, a crust. And that, that gave the wolves uh, free, free access to the, to the moose. I mean, they, they could kill easily and often, and they did. Uh, not, the, not the wolves' fault. I don't, I don't fault the wolves for this. I don't hate the wolves. The wolves um, are just doing what wolves do. I, I believe it's a function of climate change that this thing happened. And, and I really believe that uh, it, it shows up real problems with our management. We don't have numbers to back up what I'm saying because nobody knows what the numbers were out there on the land base. And we don't have people out there checking out to say, well, what's going on? What, why is this actually happening on an ongoing basis? And so we don't know why those moose and elk numbers plummeted. And, and I think that our management needs a revamping. We have to have information that can allow us to make good decisions in the future. Wildlife information, population numbers, and so on. We have to have that. And, and that's just something that has not been a focus. I mean, it's been, you know, every, I don't know, five years or something, a, a, a very cursory survey has been done in some areas. Like, it's really low. We need more than that if we're going to manage responsibly, I believe. Yeah, there's, and, you know, it's, that's a, we've talked about this a lot, not so much on the podcast, but certainly within our, our hunting conservation community about advocating for better, mm-hmm. um, you know, baseline uh, data on wildlife populations. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's phenomenal. I mean, it's a huge land base to cover, obviously, and it's difficult, but there's new tools oh, yeah. and like between, you know, drones yeah. and wildlife cams and, you know, not everything has to be done in a helicopter anymore. There's, there's some interesting opportunities and I, and I think that's coming into the fold now. And, and there's also opportunities for, and, and mm-hmm. we hope and is to have more, you know, you know, citizen science out there, whether it's hunters or horsemen helping us gather this information and collect indicators of, of the change in wildlife and over time. And it's, it's, there's a, there is a, there is a potential for it, but boy, is it a tough task ahead? And, and yeah, because, oh, yeah. because we haven't been doing it, we don't really have the baseline and it's so unique in a place like the MK and the, say the Cataga where it is, it's truly a, a functioning ecosystem. So when you, when you see that devastation of a population, you can't just point to, well, the loggers came in and built a road and it's the snowmobilers that were harassing no. them and it's the wolves that got them. And you, you have all these things you could point at and, you know, and everybody's pointing at each other, but you know, the other day we're not looking at some of these core problems around say like climate change and that is having these tremendous impacts on, on our wildlife. And, Absolutely. and we're not really, I don't know what we could, 
yeah, I mean, we don't even know what to do about it because we're not, we don't even have the information to sort of say, hey, well, we should do something because yes, there was this many and this. Well, is that's right. Actually, so it's it's a conundrum and it goes in a circle. But um, yeah, yeah, like right right now, while so, while they manage it for or while while they population for me is I I reach out to guys like you and others who are like who've been to these places. I'm like, have you how, how's the population looking? Is it you know is it a sustainable hunt if I go into these areas? And that shouldn't be the way to do it. There should be public information around the health of wildlife populations. So, you know, we can make decisions around where we want to go and harvest ethically. Right. And it's uh, Absolutely. backwards, right? But. Absolutely. And it, it should be, it, that should be reflected in the amount of uh, hunting opportunity that's offered to people. Right. Absolutely. If you have lower populations, the opportunity goes down. That's just fundamental. Yeah. And, but we don't have that information to even base that on, you know, not in any, in any rigorous way. It's kind of like seat of the pants stuff. And that, oh my God, that's not very good. So we need, we need to do a better job on that. There's no doubt. We need that information. Totally. Totally. Um, where's your favorite place in the Musquakachika? If you had to pick one spot that, you know, you're going to, the last, the last view, the last, you know, experience in the MK, where, which, which spot would it be for you? You know, um, you know, the head of the Prophet River, to me, has always been a magical place. Well, first of all, you know, our lives were saved there. That was one thing. But but beyond that, I mean, it's just so gorgeous. And um, it's got so much history. I mean, the biggest uh, stone chief in the world was was taken there, uh, the, the, the Chadwick, Chadwick Ram. Chadwick yeah. A beautiful, beautiful animal, you know. And it's just one animal, but, but, that, but the whole land base has that kind of a quality and and so on. If I was to pick one place, I would I would point to the head of the Prophet River. Yeah, it's a pretty special spot. I was I was able Indeed. to get in there one year. It's difficult to get into, and um, but yeah, what a spot! What a spot to be. And, uh, and it's not a park. It is a special management area. There's some rare earth minerals in some of that country, which we all need for our cell phones now. And those uh, ten years are, as I understood it, a few years ago, were still in effect. And what does that require? Does that require a road into the upper profit? I don't know, but it's open for that right now. And so it totally depends basically on mineral prices and whoever wants to stand in front of the cats. Well, maybe Elon can mine it from space using one of his satellites, yeah, you know? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Maybe. But you know, um, I just wanted to go back to one, one point. Um, we had talked about, um, the fact that we don't have information and, and it's hard to unravel the, the effects of, you know, access and, and harvesting and road development and uh, a human use, all those things from what's going on on the land base. How much of an effect is our humans having on the land base? Well, the Gataga River is one place where, as I, as I mentioned before, there's basically so little human access there. All those, all of those, um, factors are eliminated. And what that offers is an opportunity for basically research into, um, as a baseline for what's happening out there in the land base. And in order to facilitate that, I've been working for the last couple of years to develop uh, the, our Mayfield Base Camp as a potential research, wilderness research field station, mm -hmm. so that basically universities can book time to come in and research wilderness subjects in an area that's un, 
uncomplicated by all those other factors of human disturbance. And we can find out, well, okay, the, the moose populations in the Gatega dropped by 80%, but it wasn't due to, you know, snowmobiles or, or uh, logging or road building or any of those other things, access, ATVs, none of that stuff. It was another factor. And I think uh, the Mayfield offers a, 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 such an important opportunity to unravel these, these issues. And so for the past couple of years, we've been uh, building infrastructure to allow researchers to come and spend some good quality time researching these really valuable, uh, really important issues in an area that, you know, removes all those complicating factors uh, at the Mayfield Base Camp. That's interesting. Uh, total sidebar, but would you consider the horse trails the main migratory game routes in a lot of these areas? Are they the main route? Yeah, but it, it's what came first. Well, that, in most of these areas, it's in most of these areas, it's the wilderness, the the trail, the wildlife trail that came first. I mean, our our trails are all basically wildlife trails stitched together. You know, we do three hundred miles of travel in the MK. See, this is the perfect most of that. This is the perfect opportunity. I, I think you could have wildlife cameras, you know, at, oh, yeah. on all the horse trails, and 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 you'd actually be capturing a, a statistically significant uh, data you capture of, of wildlife use. Um, on and, and you can work with all the guide outfitters up north and and horse packers, and uh, as they go by, you, you just pull the card out, put a new one in, send them yep. send them to the, the biologist in Victoria, and and uh, you you could probably do a pretty good sampling of of wildlife populations over. Yeah, um, good plan. There you go. Hey, but here's a complicating factor though. <laughs> Interesting one. Yeah, there's a complicating factor. I've heard of cases now where. Uh, some of the guide outfitters, not going to mention any names, are putting out wildlife game cams, particularly in sheep areas. Yep. And when they find a, find a big sheep that wanders through their game cam, they can take that picture to, you know, I don't know, some CEO down in Texas. Yeah. Say, look, I have this big, fantastic sheep. Would you like to hunt it? It's going to cost you, you know, 100 grand, but here he is. And they sell these sheep, you know, individual sheep. Uh, now that to me, there's a lot of issues around sheep hunting. Uh, that's one of them, mm -hmm. the use of game cams and selling individual sheep. Uh, I don't, I don't know. That sounds pretty, pretty, that, I think that interferes with fair chase. Well, frankly. that's, it's an, I, that's an ethical concern and that's just, it's unfortunate. We, we actually found one of those cameras on top of a mountain, um, in the MK that was, uh, did you? Yeah. And it had, yeah. And it had said, uh, while, uh, sheep research camera and so we thought oh, oh yeah. cool and then of course we went back and talked to the sheep pilots so they're like uh that's not our camera uh, never <laughs> saw like, it no they don't know i mean <laughs> yeah. great you found it but it's not yeah. ours they're like yeah. oh man okay i think i think and i think you just rounded out the story there for us so um that's disappointing well, well um this is happening and um potentially so you know i think government has to get in front of that one frankly uh no you shouldn't be using game cams like that no yeah. that's not right yeah well it, it, there's it, a few other issues out there too well i it, we, we've talked about like uh with our, our backcountry hunters and anglers community here in region two we've talked about what well, we have taken up we're trying to look for ways of getting new hunters engaged in conservation and we've, yeah. we've started a wildlife uh, camera monitoring program and uh, we've partnered actually with with parks and uh some of the research that's already going on in, in some of our urban parks but also into some blacktail country um, as well as some wolverine stuff which is which is super cool but obviously people are looking they're like well why wouldn't like we don't want hunters like capturing camera data 
in Blackdale's and they see a big Blackdale and all these hunters are going to want to kill it. It's like, oh, well, I, oh, yeah? I guess so. But let's look at the bigger picture here. Like we are hunters, but we're also conservationists. So I think we could probably find mechanisms so that we're getting the data, we're doing the conservation work and, yeah, and um, you know, maybe we're not necessarily, you know, going, to, I mean, I understand that the concern, but I also, you know, there's gotta be a way to make it work. Cause I mean, it's the horse, it's, it's the guide outfitters, it's the trappers, it's the horse packers that are out there. Um, yeah. It'd be cool to figure something out. Anyways, that, that's another sidetrack we could go down a long way. Well, yeah, that's an, it's yeah. an issue for sure that I, I believe has to be addressed. I mean, fair yeah. chase is, is a real thing. <laughs> totally. So, okay. Okay. Another, another one for you is if I, if I was, if you were to say, okay, if you were to do one, if you're, if you were to say, Dylan, if you were to do one pack trip in the MK, which one <laughs> should it be? Oh, you know, uh, people have asked me that. We do about, um, uh, well, we, we've kind of turned away from uh, our big long trips. We used to start on the Sikkany. Um, we'd go up the Sikkany, uh, Nevis Creek, Prophet. That was a two-week trip. Then we go from the Prophet to uh, the Musqua, the Gatho, uh, Toshodi. That was another two-week trip. Yeah. Then from the Toshodi over to the Gataga, that was two weeks. And then another two weeks from the Gataga out to the highway. All of those ones have their own charms and and uh, beauty. And, uh, you know, it, it's really difficult to, to pick one. I think for me, the most, the most, um, the wildest and the most spectacular and the one where you see the least people would be the head from the head of the prophet to the uh, head of, to the Toshodi. That, um, that trip is, is wild and, and uh, absolutely amazing in lots of ways. You never, you, you even if you climb up any mountain, you won't be able to see a valley with a road in it. It's completely. Wayne, tell wild. me where, you, where you'd like to see the the Musqua in in a hundred years. The Musquacachica in a hundred years. I think um, I think it has to remain. The land base would look pretty similar to what it does now. Uh, very few changes. We'd have better wildlife management. We're, we'd have a lot better data. We'd have more of a handle on on um you know uh population numbers uh, honestly if we're going to do uh uh predator control we should know those numbers you know we absolutely should and not just go until we figure it's time to quit by the seat of the pants so that's that's one thing um i think um i think there what i would like to see and what i believe will happen is co-management with first nations and uh, muskwakatika right now is Government has a sole, sole decision-making responsibility, and I believe that has to be uh, shared with First Nations. That it's a co-management system that actually has the, the decision-making is actually shared. Um, you know, obviously, uh, authorized decision-makers don't really care for that because um, you know it dilutes the power. But I absolutely believe that that power has to be shared. So that's fundamentally important. I think. Um, from my perspective, I'd like to see uh, the uh, a research uh, wilderness research station in place, and also a front country research station, uh, potentially in the Toad River area, to do research on you know wildlife management issues uh, um, and so on. If you have a, both a front country and a back country wilderness research center, you can then sort out those factors that are due to human disturbance and take that out of the equation. Um, very, very important. Um, I think we have to have a, 
uh, a set of uh, rules around hunting that really protects vulnerable populations and subspecies. You know, we, there's a situation on the Gataga right now where um, there was a sheep herd that used to go 10 or 15 miles back in the mountains from the Toshodi. Um, uh, it was kind of an unknown population of rams that used to go over to these mountains. And uh, they got discovered. And so the guide outfitter would go and take one a year. But then it got discovered by other folks. And you know what? That population doesn't exist anymore. Uh, if you take out all those old rams, you don't have that cultural knowledge that, you know, which mountains to, to go to to find the right feed and so on. Uh, there's a there's a, a memory there, a cultural memory. And if you take out all those old guys, you lose that. And I think that's that's uh, that has to be reversed. We have to figure out how to deal with that problem. And those vulnerable populations, you know, we have to figure a way to manage them that, that makes sense for everybody. I'm not saying stop hunting. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying management, manage it in a better way, a more fine-grained way, so that you take into account those kinds of issues about, you know, that one herd of, that one band of rams that, you know, takes off to the Gataga every summer. Uh, how many can you take out of there? That sort of thing. That's a, a knowledge issue it relates to, you know, how much do we actually know what's going on in the land base? I think, yeah, uh, and no, just I think there's one room more for thing. that. For sure. Yeah, I should go for it. Um, I think on a, on an international level, I think the Muskokatika will be will come to be known as one of the great wilderness areas on the globe. It'll be kind of like Kruger or, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Banff and Jasper or whatever, these other well-known uh, wilderness areas and wildlife areas. I think it's going to be in the absolute top category of those, of those kinds of areas in the future and managed as such. That's the part that I find so incredibly fascinating is that people don't really know how about this place. I mean, I, I, I say to people when I go up north, I say, it's like, well, it's kind of like going to like, going hanging out in Jasper, but there's no people and you can like, yeah. you, you can fish and hunt and be in the wild and immerse yourself uh, in it, and and yet it's 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 more beautiful than <laughs> I think it's the coolest <laughs> well, thing ever. It's, and like, it's a heck of a lot I, cleaner. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and uh, I mean, I, mm -hmm. but I also I just think it's so important we talk about it because um, yeah, I, I don't think people know know enough about the value there and what's what's happening and and I think people should go experience it. Um, how can people go experience it? Like you've done a lot to to facilitate that. So what? If someone wanted to come and you know experience and see it, um, how how can you help them do that? Well, th there's a number of different ways. Of course, um, you, you know you know you can go out with outfitters that are out on the, across the land base. They're, they're they're most of the MK or if not all of it, uh, the outfitters operate in, and they will certainly take you out. Uh, that'll be a hunting oriented uh, experience. Obviously, not always they have ecotourism as well. We're we're a total ecotourism operation and. And uh, we have been, you know, for years, our, because we love it, it's horses. We take horses out into the mountains and we travel, make these, you know, three-month treks, which is fantastic. But we've, we've decided to kind of change our focus at this point. We still are doing uh, horse trips, but we're, we're adding uh, wilderness base camp experiences at, May, at, at Mayfield Lake. And basically what this allows people to do is to have people come in and immerse themselves in wilderness for you know a week at a time or whatever. You don't have to have uh, horse horse uh, uh, experience. You don't you don't have to be overly fit. You have to be able to walk around, obviously. And yeah, but you don't have to be 
you know, a, a, a long distance marathon or anything to do this stuff. And we're trying to make it easy for people to get in. It's a one day flight from Vancouver to Fort Nelson, van to Muncho, Muncho to Mayfield. You're there that night. Unbelievably enough, you can get right to Mayfield Lake in one day. And and, and doing that, I we believe, plus the infrastructure we built up at, Musk, at uh, Mayfield, which is basically a a, a pavilion for people to, uh, you know, eat and, and to congregate under and so on, tents and all that good stuff. Not a fancy place, but it's a place that's comfortable and will allow you to see the wilderness in a, in a, in a really intimate way and, and not in a way that will damage the wilderness. That's our hope. And in the future, we want to make it so easy for people to do this, to experience that wilderness, because there's a fundamental reason it, it's not it's not the money. That's not the point. The point is it's going to allow more and more people to get into the MK, to see what's there, to experience that and become advocates for it. If I can turn out a fleet of advocates every year, my job is done. You know, that's what I want. I want people to understand it and fight for it and, and value it. That's a great message. And I, I think you've done a good job. And I and yeah, and what a spot. I, I On my list of adventure hunts and adventures, is to fly into um, Mayfield Lakes and take our rafts down the Kataga and then eventually pop out on the Kachika. And it's, it, it's, I don't know, it's, much, it's not really a hunt as much as it's just an opportunity to see that, that part of the world. And if we're floating out the Kachika and an elk walks by, great. But, you know, that this is neat stuff. And I, and I, that's, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I just don't, I can't get enough of trying to find these places and figure out how to do right that. On. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, fun. May, Mayfield it, is kind of the 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 natural jumping off point for the trip down the Gataga. Yeah, that's it's one the, written it's up. The, it's the one place you can land. Yeah, it's written up in the. Um, uh, there's this. Oh, Josh, I'm dropping her name right now. Um, she's done an Laurel amazing Archer. couple. Laurel, thanks. Yeah, Laurel, Laurel yeah. Archer. Yeah, she's done a great job of of talking about different adventures and and beasts. Oh, she's done that. some amazing stuff and amazing writer. And yeah, yeah, she's neat. Fantastic she's super books. neat. I actually, mm -hmm. when I fired off the, I, so the two books I was reading, because I'm in my adventure hunt planning cycle, these, oh, short, yeah. these short, short days uh, and, and uh, long nights, and, and uh, in order to fight off the winter blues, I, I like, I, I'll find myself sort of flying over Google Earth to these amazing places and doing, oh, and doing yeah. some deep research. So, so I, I actually, in the same night, I was like, I was reading your book and I was reading um, Laurel's book and, and, and kind of formulating a bit of a concept. And I was like, I should reach out to these folks and see if they want to talk about wilderness because these are wilderness people. And uh, so I fired off the invitation to both of you. So I'm still waiting to hear back from Laurel. I, I, and I hopefully, I hopefully I'll get her on one of these days. Cause I just, yeah, her accomplishment of those two books. And I no doubt she'd be an interesting person who shares passion no for the wilderness. So, so I'm feeling excited. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Last question. That is an easy one. And it's cause it's eat wild. You have to, can you, can you think back at your most memorable meal in wilderness <laughs> oh <laughs> maybe involving some wild food <laughs> well yes i can <laughs> yes i can um we um uh, pulled into uh the henry creek uh this is in the uh eastern slopes on the northern kind of the northern end of the muscle well not the north farthest north but uh it's uh, south of the tets and north of the chuska there was a uh, group of hunters there. There was three of them, a uh, uh, father and a couple of sons. And uh, they had shot three rams uh, in the last couple of few days. And uh, they had their meat cached in a meat cache out on the, on the side of the Henry Creek. 
uh, hung up in a tree. And uh, we didn't, uh, because of, it's kind of a constrained area there, we had to camp quite close to them within a couple hundred yards kind of a, of their camp. And uh, so all night we could hear their horses and, and so on and quite a bit of commotion during that night. And it was kind of a disturbed night. We got up in the morning and found out why. A grizzly bear had come in and robbed their meat cache and, and taken all of their meat. Now their, their uh, horns, which of course is so valuable, they had them stored under their cots. So they did, the bear didn't get those. But <laughs> they got all the meat, all of it. And so, you know, they told us this story and then they were packing up that day to get out. Their loads were considerably lighter because they didn't have to pack meat. And uh, so as they're taking off, uh, you know, we're waving goodbye to them as they head out down the trail uh, over to the Tetsa. And I happened to be standing in this kind of a torn up chunk of ground. It, it was about maybe, you know, 30 feet from where their, where their horses had been. And I looked down and here's a little, a little string poking out of the moss, a little, a little piece of uh, 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 like a baler twine, you know, plastic baler twine. So what the heck is this? And I pulled it out. Oh, out pops a beautiful sheep tenderloin, <laughs> the entire tenderloin. Look at this. Oh, it was a gorgeous thing. You know, sheep meat is, well, for those of you who know it, it's absolute, one of the absolute best foods in the bush. It's absolutely beautiful, tasty, wonderful meat. And I had just scored this tenderloin. The, uh, the hunters had gone over the edge. There was no possible, of the trail, there was no possibility of catching them. So I couldn't, you know, run after them or whatever. So I said, well, look, what's, what's going on here? How did this tenderloin get here? And I looked around and uh, looking in the moss, I brushed it with my feet. Oh, here's a backstrap, a whole backstrap. The grizzly bear had buried uh, this beautiful backstrap and this beautiful chunk of elk te- uh, sheep tenderloin in this. It was a cold morning in September, so it was like it was on ice, you know. It was cold, cold meat. So, I, so I'm standing there without any uh, rifle or yeah, yeah, not even yeah. an axe, and I'm in a grizzly bear's food cache. And yeah. we know he was there like an hour ago, right? And he could be watching us right this very second. So, man, the hair on my neck went up. And I figured, okay, i got to get out of here, but not without that meat. So <laughs> <laughs> I grabbed that meat and, and, and uh, scurried off to our campsite as quick as I could, got out of there, cleaned off all that uh, on the outside of that meat. And, uh, and, oh, we fried that up, and it was just delicious. And then after that, I took that, the, the scraps with my rifle this time and buried it underneath that back in that food cache. So all those, all the scraps I left it for him. So he got some of it. So I figured it was pretty fair. I mean, he stole the meat from the hunters. Well, he'd stolen the meat from the hunters. He was obviously over full. And so we stole it from the bear. I figured that was fair game. So fair fair game. Yeah. Pun intended. I I think that was one of my most, most memorable meals, stealing the, stealing the meat from a grizzly bear. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you yeah. question, your, question yourself as you're standing ankle deep in a, oh. in a bear cache but well <laughs> holy cow man i tell you i was looking behind every bush on the, on the way out of there <laughs> yeah awesome awesome well this has been so much fun to get a chance hey. to connect with you wayne I, I i i briefly met you there at the trailhead and just uh there and um I, I was i was wanting to ask you a million questions then and here i am 15 years later in an opportunity to sit down with you for an hour and, and um I, I do want to thank you uh, you know from a conservationist and a park manager i, I want to thank you for for your commitment to wilderness and wildlife and conservation and, and dedicating you know your life to that cause and and 
and allowing me and so many others to be able to um, enjoy the wilderness and, and, and more importantly, the critters in the wilderness to continue to be. So thank you for your good work. Hey, thank you, Dylan. And uh, I would I would just add one thing. There's a I put out a new book now. It's called Crossing the Divide. And the divide, of course, is that divide between, you know, there's many divides. Mm -hmm. You know, we cross the, uh, the, the Moskva divide and the profit divide and all those. But there's also the divide between industrialists and conservationists and, and the divide between, uh, you know, those who value wilderness and those don't, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that book is, is about that, plus some, some experiences. And I don't mind, I, I, I think that story about stealing the sheep feed is even in that book. So it'll be, it's an interesting <laughs> read for folks, for sure. Crossing the divide, let's go. Cool. Well, it's in the mail. So uh, when, it, when it pops out this way, I'll uh, maybe I'll get a chance to read it and, um, and, and post this on the on the podcast and, and Thanks, on, on social media. But this has been a lot of fun. Um, hang on to the call here. I'm going to shut this down. Hang on. And then um, I'm going to see how much I can get out of you for my adventure hunt ahead here. So. <laughs> well, and I, and I hope we meet on the trail someday, Dylan. That would be fantastic. Right we'll, Thank you. We'll Thank you for this. Stand by here. Bye for now. Hey folks, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Now, we'd love to hear from you. So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at dylan at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis, talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. There are tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, we do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast that'd be a great help to us and more importantly share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about so thanks for doing that until next time eat well and wild well.